I, I feel an incredible responsibility to the people. When it's a true story, they're like you're, who you're making the film for in a way. And, and there is a, a pressure, like I'm always imagining them sitting in the back of the theater watching it, you know, on, on the premiere or whenever they watch it first. It's like, well, if they don't like it, then I'm just completely failed at my job. Like this is their story. You want to honor that to such a, a great degree, or at least I do. are listening to the Act One Podcast. I'm your host, James Duke. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy what you hear, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a good review. My guest today is filmmaker Brian Baugh. Brian is a director, screenwriter, cinematographer, and producer. Brian started out as a director of photography when he shot his first feature film at the young age of 25. He spent the next 10 years shooting over 20 films and dozens of commercials. Brian transitioned into feature film directing with the high school drama To Save a Life in 2009. Since then, he has written over 20 screenplays, several of which he is attached to direct. In 2016, he directed the film I'm Not Ashamed, which told the true story of Rachel Joy Scott, the first student killed at the infamous Columbine High School shooting. In 2019, he wrote, produced, and directed The World We Make, a young adult romance released by Universal. His latest feature, Finding You, was released theatrically in 2021. The film is a spirited, upbeat, romantic dramedy shot in Ireland starring Jedediah Goodacre, Catherine McNamara, Tom Everett Scott, and the legendary Vanessa Redgrave. The film is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Brian is a talented filmmaker and a good dude. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Brian Baugh, welcome to the Act One Podcast. It's good to see you, man. Yeah, great to see you, and thanks for having me. I have been looking forward to this. Uh, we have known, I've known you from afar for a while. We have a lot of mutual uh, friends. And um, uh, I think at one point um, I had reached out to you actually a couple of years ago. It was, this is a while ago. I think we were trying to develop something for like a directing program or something. And we was trying to get you to be connected to it and weren't able to, but, um, but this is great. I'm so excited. This is the the joy of now that, now that people are, are um are uh, able to do a lot more stuff on zoom we're able to connect so uh it's great yeah, to have good. you yeah awesome um so you're a writer director and and uh you've got four or five films you, you had a film come out during the pandemic you had a film come out this year called finding you which is a great little film people can find on i believe it's on amazon right it's on amazon right now i think it's soon to be like a, a month away it'll be on amazon prime right now it's it's uh, for rent and, you know, on any of the major places like iTunes, Amazon, uh, Vudu, uh, Premium, yeah, anywhere you can rent, rent a video. You know, if you still do the old DVD Netflix, you can get it there <laughs> uh, or, or Redbox. Um, and it came out in, did it come out in March? So yeah, traditional route that way. Did, did it uh, come May. out? Oh, it came out in May. Sorry. Okay. Um, well, I want to, I want to yeah, talk, ab- I want to talk about, I want to talk about that film in more detail later i'd love to just kind of start by um just finding out a little bit more about you letting our audience get to know you a little bit more so as a writer director where did your kind of love and interest for film and uh writing and directing where did it come from was it was this something that you discovered later in life or is this were you one of these kids who always had some sort of camera or was always writing a uh, some sort of story from the very beginning well, yeah, it was a bit strange. It was it was kind of behind the radar because I 
I must admit, I never even thought of making movies until later on in high school. But I, I happened to be, you know, involved with little bits of entertainment stuff ever since I was like five or six. Like when it, looking back, it's I, I had these hundred page spiral notebooks filled with stories that I was writing about my friends, you know, fighting dragons on deserted islands when I couldn't even spell words properly. And um and then this, this just kind of got set down. I didn't, it was just something I did for a while. And then, and then I, like when I was in second grade, for some reason, I decided to uh, do a super eight stop motion animation film of my star Wars figures and did the full three minutes of animation, which is how much was on the cartridges at the time, you know, frame by frame for like a month over the summer. And then awesome. just didn't even think about it. It was just something to do. Right. And so I think I was always attracted to it, but there was never any sort of long-term plan. And I was, I, I was a kid who just loved being outside and playing and loving life. And so I was, I was not the go to the video store and rent 10 movies and sit inside all day. Um, and I, I was real involved in athletics and played a ton of different sports. And so that really dominated my life. But then these little things would pop in from time to time, like, you know, Oh yeah, do you want to do the play? Yeah. I'll run, I'll do the backstage or, you know, or I'll, I'll do all the lights for you or, and they would put me in these roles and I was kind of interested in them. And then uh, eventually that led to this really influential theater program that I did in Seattle area in high school, where uh, over time I developed into one of the student leaders for that. And it was a really unique program where we got to, you know, direct and do all the sound and all the lighting and build sets and design sets and um, write sketches. Is this high high school? Yeah. Yeah. So that was high school. And at the time too, we were lugging video cameras on our shoulders and just doing goofball stuff. So it was kind of a thread throughout, but it was never very intentional. It was really just for fun all the time. Um, You know, I was getting more involved in music stuff and the Seattle grunge stuff was hitting huge at the time. It was kind of right on the edge of that where I'd be like, hey, yeah, Pearl Jam's playing at this fraternity party at UW, and they're trying to rush people. You know, it's a pretty cool band. You want to go? Um, <laughs> and uh, so it was kind of on the front edge of some of that. Um, so anyway, so all those things kind of combined and uh, actually ended up going down to USC to look at the music recording program because I was starting to intern in some Seattle studios just to kind of check it out and see what that was like. Um because some of my friends were real involved in the grunge scene. And I thought maybe I wanted to be a music producer. And from there, it, uh, I kind of, we said, well, should we just take the film school tour? We're here down at USC. And, um, I took it and I was like, wow, this, this might be better. And I was, um, you know, and these internships and hearing all these complaints from these music studio owners about, you know, staying up late with coked up musicians at two in the morning. (laughs) I was like, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, film provides a little bit more diversity and there's a little more options. Um, so, so that's, you could, you, could, you could stay up, you could stay up, uh, you know, having Coke with, uh, with a lot of uh, actors instead. <laughs> that's right. Right. I just wanted it to be, instead of five people stuck in a small room, it's just more, you know, uh, more of 150 or you know, so, but, it, but I, I was attracted to the diversity and the, all the different aspects of the art forms you could do within film you know, you could still do music. You could still yeah. um, do the writing aspect. You could do the, the camera aspect, wonderfully diverse uh, art form that uh, you could follow different interests in. And it just seemed like never ending. The, the numbers of things to challenge yourself with were just endless. 
the so you uh, applied and got accepted. You went to the U.S. So so you did your undergrad at USC. I did. Yeah. Okay. And um, uh, what was that experience like? Because I, I know a lot of we, we've had a lot of the uh, Act Oneers come through that 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 have done USC. Um, what was that experience like for you? It was fantastic. I I loved it because because I liked a lot of different things. It was wonderful to be able to go to a large college and do a whole bunch of different stuff while still doing a film program. And, you know, you can be involved in inner city stuff. You can, you know, I was an RA, I was in a fraternity, I was, you know, playing sports, uh, you know, intramurally and, and then doing the film stuff. So it was, it was just fat. It was just fabulous to have all these different ways to learn about people and life and, and everything. Um, but then in the film program specifically, like I just love the the caliber of people there uh, that I, you know, became dear friends with and I'm still in touch with this day. There's we had a real special class and we're all so many of us are still in touch and talking to each other a few times a year and, and checking in and helping each other out. And so it was really a beautiful time. We were we were all just kind of little little film maniacs like we just we just stuff wasn't very good, but we were trying hard. And um it was just a fantastic group to group of people who are really smart and hustled a lot. Um, so we were spending hours and hours calling up all the rental companies, getting all this equipment for our films and stages. <laughs> and, you know, so just a really awesome, like I said, really bright um, group of people that was really inspiring. And we just kind of all pushed each other and, and then at the same time helped each other in these great ways. And, and with our ambitions uh, to try to try to learn and, and do the best we could with these, with our little projects. Well, let's talk about your faith journey. Um, were you already a believer while you were at USC or um, give us a little bit of your um, background and your um, faith journey? Yeah, it was, um, it's tough to say. Mine, mine kind of feels like this long progression. And, you know, whenever I get to a stage, it would be like, well, I didn't really understand things back then. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I have, I have, I feel like a little bit of a unique or sort of interesting journey because I never, um, mine, mine's a little bit uninstitutional um, and probably led a little bit by my skeptic father, you know, who, who has a faith, but, you know, it was never a huge party. Like they, he would let me during, while they went to church, I would go out and listen to Casey Kasem's top 40 in the car. And, uh, or, uh, you know, you know, you know, a sad fact is that most of our audience that are like under the age of 35 have no idea the joy and the experience that we would all have to what's the top 40. Like what's the number one song in the country. Let's listen. Yeah. To they won't have that. They don't have that joy that we have. They could just, yeah, like this, you had to, you know, tune in on the radio show. And I was pretty young, but I, I was, like I said, I was into music and, was excited and was in, you know, just little middle school rock bands and stuff like that. So we were just really into the music scene. And, um, but yeah, so, so my, my faith journey, I feel like there's little markers where I think I always had a deep respect for uh, Jesus and what he was doing and his, his mission and the great adventure of it. But there was for me, at least personally, a great disconnect with what I saw in Christian culture mm. and, so I would, I just didn't have a whole lot of, of examples that I wanted to be like. So I was sort of this person rejecting the, the culture that I saw that felt a little bit 
at least again, in my experience, it was a little fake or kind of had this gloss of unreality over it. And um, I just never, never connected with that. So a lot of the institutional stuff that I was exposed to, I just didn't, didn't find a great connection with that. And so um, in some ways then at that age, I just threw the baby out with the bathwater, but I always had this deep respect for, um, for Jesus and what he did. And, and so I, I would, I kind of knew that. And I, I would at times read the Bible in real in depth and I would even use the principles, but it, it didn't kind of all uh, commence until like midway t- through high school and uh, through young life where I kind of first heard things in a way that I could make sense mm. um, and did some of the, uh, had some of the experiences there. And there's a lot of, um, when I was up in Seattle, there's, there's a decent influence of young life up there. And so that, that really became the, the start. And then I think it took me like four or five years to, um, kind of figure out which was kind of midway through college or so when you know to get rid of old patterns and old ways that I had been doing things and and um yeah so it felt like this kind of four or five year journey to once I knew what I believed to start uh understanding what that meant in my life um, so yeah so it's it a bit of a, a a process but in a, in a cool way like I never you know it wasn't tied to one church or person, very personal in, in my own. Yeah. So you, you found yourself uh, graduating from USC uh, and then what, what did you, uh, what was, once you got out of college, what, uh, what were the next steps for you? Well, I, I had a, a bit of a choice to make at the time. Um, and I was really trying to decide between, do I pursue this writing directing path and which some of my professors who kindly were, were really encouraging me down that, that road. Um, they had, they'd appreciated some of my work and whatnot. And, and then on the other side was the cinematography piece. Cause I had shot a decent amount of the, of the student films for friends and, and um, actually had a fairly substantial reel there as well, where um, so, and yeah, I really didn't, what, but honestly, what was happening first was that I had applied and got this scholarship that was kind of like a Fulbright scholarship uh, through, um, it's called a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholarship, where I could go anywhere in the world. And I chose to go to um, Cape Town, South Africa, and study at the University of Cape Town. And so I had this odd, like, because of the way the school years lined up and the funding, I had this like year off where I, um, before, after graduation, before that started. And so I was fortunate to be able to intern on a bunch of studio features from uh, some SC connections and things like that under some cinematographers that I had gotten to know because part of the hustle during our college days was calling up, you know, Caleb Deschanel and Alan Davio and asking them, you know, how do I shoot this? Or, you know, (laughs) um, or how do, how do we go about this? Or we don't, you know, we have this car scene and, you know, <laughs> we, we don't have a process trailer. So what are we going to do? <laughs> um, or, you know, how did you, how did you do this photographic technique in the natural to make it look right? You know, if we were, if we were doing this baseball movie. And so we asked Caleb and so I got to know some of those guys. And so I was able to intern on some of those sets and see, see the world and, and um, knew that then had kind of had this odd year of studying in South Africa where I, you know, did some writing. And then also I felt kind of, um, after film school, I felt oddly like, um, like I had almost done graduate school first and I didn't, Mm. like, I wanted to know more about, uh, 
just random subjects, you know, communism, world history, uh, you know, just different uh, philosophies. And, you know, I, I felt like as a filmmaker, you have to have, um, you know, Dean Cundy says you have to know a little bit about everything. And I think at 22 coming out, it's like, I, I, what, and you guys often speak to this, right? Where, where's my voice? What am I even going to say? Yeah. And um, so I really wanted to spend that year just reading a ton. And I, I think I read a stack of books like four feet high or something. But by, um, by, by the way, for aspiring filmmakers who are listening to this podcast, this is the best advice someone can give you right now. I can't recommend this more highly. Take some time <laughs> to go live life, read, travel, meet new people. This is this is important for filmmakers. This seems like this was probably pretty seminal for you, wouldn't you say, Brian? Oh, it was huge. Yeah, I mean, it was it was so formative. Just um, you know, I I had always had a uh, you know fascination and curiosity for about Africa, and you know, it was so. Uh, probably partially because of the the book and film of power of one mm -hmm. or, or the the power of one the bryce courtney book um you know i was like oh, i, I gotta go check this out um and and learn about it and see what's going on there i was just i was just always fascinated about it and um by the way i love south africa i've been there i haven't been to cape town but i i spent i've been to pretoria and to johannesburg oh yeah I have dear friends there and yeah. um, it is a fascinating, there's a fascinating place, a beautiful country full of, full of lots of dichotomies. And, oh my um, gosh. Yeah. And you have 13 national languages and four main yep. cultures and yep. you're, you know, the, the white people don't get along and the black people don't get along with their different tribes and, parts yep. and, and yep. then you add in the, the, what they call the colored population, which is kind of a mix of the Dutch and the, the indigenous native folks. Um, yep that that were there at the very beginning I mean, it's just a absolute cultural mess and there's so much to learn and, and it's beautiful to see how they've uh you know nelson mandela and his team led with this amazing forgiveness and mm -hmm. yep. and uh, stop the civil war but yeah but i i mean i digress to go back to yeah i just kind of came out of film school feeling like wow just there's so much more at, at 22 that i need to learn to be uh you know as I aspired to be great at this, at this profession and to have something, we have a great privilege of sharing themes and messages with the world. So I wanted to go and um, yeah, just see what was out there, see what was learned. And, and there's, there's so much in, um, in our first world that we don't know about the third world. So I was really excited to explore some of those, um, you know, lower income, less, less privileged areas and, and spend time there and see what I could learn about, learn from those folks um, and just have some dear friends from there. So yeah, so it was a really formative year. Um, and just had the the great gift of, of time too, and was fortunate to have someone else uh, have that. And then just got to meet tons of different people and travel all over. Did you, did you feel like you had to choose coming out of school uh, between these things that interested you writing directing or cinematography like at, like at that time did you feel like man i have to pick one or the other or or were you did you still think okay no i can maybe i can still do all of this maybe i can make a living doing everything or did you feel the pressure to go no i need to pick a lane i felt it was wise to to pick a lane and i still think i would 
I would, uh, I would suggest that. I think, you know, in, in, L, in LA, well, I guess there's a, pre- there's two, two aspects. There's the practical aspect that there's only so much time in a day and there's so much excellence required to be good at something. And in a very competitive industry, like the film industry, you've really got to be one of the best at whatever you're trying to do to even get hired to do anything. So, so I do think you, and, and you kind of can't, I mean, there, there's some people like Soderbergh that goes and shoots his own stuff, or, you know, you could argue James Cameron's doing things and there's some playing and um, the occasional one that throws a camera on his shoulder. But I think those are more the rarity. And, and honestly, those people are probably propped up by other crew members or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not having to stay up and current on a certain discipline because they have certain levels of support. Um, so, yeah, so I just, I just saw people that were going out and trying to do everything. Couldn't kind of get, it was very difficult for them to get, get, get a, even one of those things. Yeah. And when your focus is split, it's difficult and people. And then the second side is that I think producers and people who are hiring, they don't want to, to be confused about what you are. It's like, well, are you an editor or are you a director or like, cause they basically want to know uh, which one you're good at. Right. right. <laughs> you know, you're confusing me. Like you, you can't be a good, you know, I, I know you can't be a good uh, composer and a great, uh, you know, uh, editor that's it just there's not enough time in the day right so it, it tends to and, look and, and also and also they want to know but and also maybe they, at a certain point they want to know how to budget you <laughs> right yeah yeah, yeah if you can save them money then obviously they like those things yeah 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 um, if you're a multi-slash i can save some money by paying one person yeah and there are some folks out there that are composer director editors and they kind of do everything um and, and, you know, it's the Robert Rodriguez or the, there's some guys that kind of jump in and, and do that and, and more power to them. There, there's a handful of folks I know like that. And, but I think they typically do that mainly for their own stuff that they find their own funding for rather than getting hired by other people to do everything. Um, so did you so find your, did you find yourself coming out of your South Africa experience kind of drawn to to, to writing more kind of processing what you were learning and like, what, what, what was it that um, kind of led you to kind of focus maybe more on writing and directing? Well, it was, it wasn't until somewhat later. So yeah, so I did come out of that, that South Africa time. I was coming back to the States. I was actually doing a ton of writing, but I was kind of just doing it for the future in a way. And I, I had the most, um, I probably had slightly more cinematography stuff than directing stuff on a reel. And it was of a higher quality and coupled with that. um, I just began to see some of my buddies who had come out of SC who were pursuing the writing and directing thing. The vast majority of them, unless they had access to funds, were just kind of driving around for like three years, meeting with managers and, and pitching stories and they weren't getting on set. And so perhaps out of some impatience or, um, and maybe some stupidity, <laughs> like I just wanted to get on set and learn and and see what I could do and, and make my own mistakes. And so cinematography was going to provide the fastest and most diverse way that I could do that. Um, and so I just kind of put that forward and, and I didn't, I quietly would write in between projects and kind of kept that thread going for about three to five years though. I, I really just focused hundred percent on cinematography ended up getting in the union and, and probably shot around 25 films 
over the wow. course of about eight to 10 years. Um, and it was a fabulous training ground. There was, there was a, a professor at a 466 class at, at USC, or not a professor, but a, a visiting lecturer that came in during school. And, and his advice or what he was talking about, I can't remember his name. Like it wasn't. Um, Let's just say it was Conrad Hall. <laughs> That's right. <yeah. laughs> it, it definitely wasn't him, although that'd be great. But, but he um, he had said that like you only get your first chance to direct one time, and most people, if you mess that up, you don't get you know you're, no one's going to come back to you and say, "Oh, you messed that up pretty well. Why don't you? Why don't we give you another chance?" Uh, <laughs> so I I that for some reason that sunk in. He's like, you know, make sure you're ready. Make sure you know what you want and say that you have the skills that you know how to manage a day that you know how to deal with actors that you. And for whatever reason, that just sunk in. And I just kind of took the more marathon route of like, hey, I'm just going to uh, I want to see other people make mistakes. I want to observe techniques of other directors, um, get to know other producers, see how they're doing things. And so it was a, an incredible kind of graduate education, right, for, you know, or medical internship uh, where I could just um, be on set you know, be really close to all these things, make, be making a lot of decisions, be learning a lot myself. And, and, um, and so th that's, and I always kind of thought, okay, I'll just do this for a while. And I, I could just love this and want to do this for forever. Um, but I, I kind of always had those professors in the back of my mind, you, you need to be writing and directing, you need to be writing and directing. And, and so I, I would just, I just kind of had that in the back of my mind that someday I might, might switch. But and again, at the, at the beginning, it was pretty pure. I wasn't trying to mix those or you know, I wasn't eyeing the directors I was working with trying to steal their jobs or anything. What a, what a great, but I think you're dead on. Like, what a great masterclass for yourself of just learning and growing. And because you're, you know, as a cinematographer, you're not some sort of passive participant either, right? right. Like you're, you're actively engaged in creating the art, you know, the art that is going to, people are going to experience. So it's not, you're, it's, you know, I'm not degrading PAs, but you're not a PA. Yeah. Um, and so Oh uh, yeah, what, and it was it was it was fabulous. I mean, I, I got to actually co-direct two movies during that time where where uh, the actors were uh, directing, yeah. and so you know they'd be okay, Brian, you direct me because I you know I can't see myself, and you're looking through the lens, and so there was that. I got to on one or two, I got to direct the editing because the the editor had taken off, and the producer said, hey, why don't you step in and, and go direct the editing because they have to be in Romania or whatever doing their next movie, um, and so. So yeah, so I got a lot of directing experience during that. During well, that you know, they, I I remember when I first came out here. I remember I used to hear oftentimes, you know, the quickest way to the directing chair is you know, is if you write a great script and attach yourself to it. And they were like, but the other ways to the directing chair is either being a great DP and earning your way up to the chair, or even an editor. And we, I think you and I know, you know, we, obviously there's been a lot of, of uh, great DPs who have made that jump. They've, they've um, a lot of successful um, cinematographers who have transitioned into directing um, from your perspective. Why is that? What is it? What is it as a cinematographer? Do you think that you learned that you understood that allowed you to transition into that director's chair and, and maybe even writing too. I don't want to discount that, but like what, what did you learn as a cinematographer 
that you feel like translated and helped you into becoming the a writer director? Yeah, I think um, I mean I was unique in that. I, I mean, I, we, we kind of put a cinematographers in two buckets, right? There's like the story guys, or there's like the techie guys, and obviously those will combine, and you have different elements of those. But I was always more leaning on the story. I didn't care so much of the new equipment that was coming out, although I stayed current and whatnot. But um, and you know, and was real influenced by this class uh, taught by Bruce Block, visual storytelling, and at USC. Um, and I was just loved all those things of tying these visual elements to help tell a story better. So I think that that um, that discipline that I was just practicing over and over again of tying, of really understanding, trying to understand the story, analyze the story, and then tie visual elements to help tell that story is. If you're that type of cinematographer, that's a fantastic uh, part of directing. I think the other aspects are you just are so comfortable on set when you're on set every day. And you're you're in many ways, um, along with the director and the AD, you're managing the time. Um, and so you get really comfortable with with learning how to make days and and knowing how long things will take and knowing where you can pull from to spend it elsewhere um, you know, in a time and in somewhat of a budgetary sense. And, you know, you're comfortable with the VFX side, uh, cause you're working with those people closely. Um, so I, I just think like set mechanics, you're, there's some writers that show up to set and they're, they're you know, like you're talking about, cause I, I still think it's easier for a writer to, the, the writing path is, is easier to make it to directing than it would be through editing or DPing. Um, just because you can you can have an entity that sort of forces that if you, if you write a great script um <clears throat> but the uh there so there's just a you know an incredible comfort with knowing how a day goes that that with when you get other folks um specifically writers that haven't managed as a set or been on the, a set a ton they're um you're, you're, you're just super comfortable about all the give and take. And I'd say the third aspect would be that you're hanging around actors all day and you're seeing yep. different acting techniques and you're seeing how they, because every actor is different and you, you, a director needs to really quickly learn how they operate and what's best for them. And with the chance to see hundreds and hundreds of different actors and what they do and how they work and how they're communicated to, um, and what they respond to and what changes and what makes them them great uh, and what makes them tick. You, I, you just have a, a long log of memories that you can draw upon. They're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that technique or this one. Um, it's so, so all it's that so, was helpful. It's so amazing to me sometimes when I will hear people talk about they're going to go make a film and how they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And uh, there's such a lack of at times. And I, I'm not pointing out to anyone in anyone in particular, <laughs> although if they know they had this conversation with me and they hear this podcast, they might know, but um, You're in trouble, James. I'm in trouble. No, but there, there's sometimes there's such a lack of respect of what it means to be a real artisan and craftsman on a film set. These, these guys who are these DPs, these gaffers, these guys who are that who have worked in film and television for years, Man, there's such a to, to your point. What you're, I'm getting at to what you were saying, which is knowing how to interact, being on set every day. 
there is a skill that gets developed, even communication, how to communicate to your team, how to communicate to your guys, to your crew. Um, When I say guys, that means girls too. Uh, But you know, this idea that you can just, you can just do that. Like you can just show up one day and just be great at all these things. I'm not saying that people can't have natural raw talent, but what I am saying to your point is so much of these skills are hard fought and earned on a set and it takes time and it just takes years of practice and making mistakes and learning and growing. And that's why so many crews uh, work together uh, uh, and go and move with each other because that you build that mm-hmm. kind of, of um, lang- that second language with, with each other. And it just makes a huge difference. And I just think you, you, we can't underestimate there'll, there'll always be someone who'll just show up on the scene and make their first kind of great, their first film is citizen King, you know, every once in a while, you know, you'll, you'll have that. Yeah. But for, the, but for, for, for the vast majority of people, it takes years of working on their craft and developing. Uh, and I'm talking about not just the people that you see in front of the camera, but, but the craftsmen, the, the artisans that are behind the camera as well. Yeah. For everyone, really. I mean, it, it's such a, uh, such a difficult craft to get really great at. Um, yeah. And I think, I think people underestimate how much uh, management and leadership skills are needed as a director. Like in some ways it doesn't matter how great your artistic vision is. If you can't communicate that and get the 40 to 150, 200 people to align in that vision, you won't get it done. Or if you have a set mutiny, you know, because you're not treating people well, uh, it, it could ruin your, all your, your best scene. Or if you, uh, you know, don't know how to communicate to, to actors or don't know how to communicate to, um, to crew and, and pass on that vision. It doesn't matter how good your art is. You have to be in, in, in terms of how many people it takes to, uh, to execute that, that management and leadership is such a critical component that I think is really, really underused. In some ways I read far more uh, books about that right now than I do about actual filmmaking and screenwriting because um, it's such, it can be such a large part of the job. Absolutely. Absolutely. We talk about that at act one as well. And just that the, you know, who you, who you are on that set is more important than actually what you do on that set. Like there's, there's like a baseline of what you do on that set is important. It matters. You have to have it. Like you were saying earlier, someone's going to pay you a lot of money. There's a lot of other people trying to have that job. So you, you have to be great. Mm -hmm. There's, There's a level of, of um, highly skilled that you must is a minimum for everyone in that. But what's going to keep you there. If you're not, if you're not just going to be one and done is people, people have to enjoy you. They have to actually like to work with you. They actually have to like, like being around you. You can't be one of these um, weirdos for lack of a better word that no one wants to work with or someone that's a screamer all the time. Like, I mean, you know, you and I came up in the industry where we were still hearing stories of the screamers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And our industry has changed for the better. Those people, mm-hmm. for the most part, we've we've tried to weed them out. And most people are like, you know what? I don't want that in my life. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't want to spend, you know, 45 days on a set with people, someone's screaming at me and throwing things at me. So right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's I mean, it's an intense job with a lot of pressures, and you want to be in the battle with people that 
you can depend on that you enjoy and and just the simple fact you're spending 10 to 14 maybe more hours a day with them yep. <laughs> you know you it's you you want it to be an enjoyable experience and and one of my greatest joys is when you have those incredible collaborations with people and they're performing at a real high level and and able to be their best creative selves within their discipline and and you're you're uh, doing what you can to support that i mean that's really what the the, the highest call I think of a director is, you know. So you um, you made a film back in two. I think it came out in two thousand nine. This was uh, this was your first kind of solo directing credit uh, to, mm-hmm. uh, to um, to save a life. Yep. And um, what was the story behind it? Had you felt like at this point you were ready? Like was it one of those things? Because you had, you had spent all this time as a, as a as a DP and you felt like, okay, I'm ready. Was there something about the story? Tell us a little bit about the background of, of to save a life, which by the way, I don't can, where can people see this? Because it's a, it's a really good little film. I remember when it first came out, I was a little skeptical. <laughs> and Christina I was too. Was, I was too. <laughs> and Christina was like, no, you should watch it. Cause she told me, she's like, we shot it on a, on a pretty much nothing budget. But, um, I was uh, really impressed by the by the heart and the pathos of the film, and it, it felt different than what at the time what other people would classify as a quote unquote Christian film, and uh, this one felt a little different, and so I was actually kind of uh, impressed in that way. But I just want to just give the people is there it was a place they can watch it today or? Yeah, it's I mean it's you can rent it at all the you know the the normal places and and um, and I do think. It, it just came off uh, the so Sony firm had, had distributed at home video for a bunch of years, but I think it just came off that contract and is now on some of the, uh, even some of the free, um, what are they like Tubi and Pluto oh, and some okay. of those, yeah. okay. um, where, you know, you might watch a commercial or a few commercials or whatever, but you can access it there as well. Okay. So tell us the, what, what led to you making that film? Yeah. So I was, um, you know, maybe it was a, a year or two before I was starting to um, feel in the cinematography thing. I was hearing the voices of those professors and feeling like um, it was just getting a little bit of a spiritual nudge to move into the to the waters of, of helping be in charge of story, uh, you know, and into muscles. And I, I had begun to um, start screenwriting, you know, in between uh, DP projects. And so I was working on several scripts Um and just like you had said, I, I, I too felt the easiest way to do it was to write your way into directing and to come up with a script that uh, someone would like enough that they would allow you to direct it. And I, I had quite a bit of encouragement from other producers I was working with as a DP as well. And so they were helping in that process. So I, I began to start to make this this uh, intentional move towards that. Um, and and like I said, was was writing a bunch. And uh I had just come off shooting uh, the, the Ultimate Gift, um, which I, you know, the one of James Garner's last movies, uh, which was a real joy. And then that back to relatively soon after that was this one called American Carol, this wacky one with, that David Zucker directed. Yep. I, yep. I was kind of coming off these bigger, bigger shoots, um, and 
it, I was like, oh, wow. And it, it, whenever you're making a transition, it's like, okay, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making this sort of salary and then boom, it's going to come to nothing. So it's just sort of <laughs> because, you know, someone has to to trust you, retrust you in a different role. Um, I, I think that was the most perfect definition of Hollywood in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get this money and then boom. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But I think, I mean, that's why a lot of uh, talented cinematographers that could be directors, I think, don't make the transition is because they're paid so well and they, Develop a certain, but I but I had this. Um, I just had this. I felt uh, you know calling's probably a bit over spiritualizing it, but but I did felt this nudging to just well, it's it's time for you to um, be a little you know just to be more in in charge of content you know and and be you know be a little bit more um, just just have a higher stake in what's getting out there because as a, as a as a crew member you're just getting handed what you're going to do right and you just say yes or no but you don't in the end of the day have much influence about the themes perhaps and the um the stories that are being told and so i i yeah i just felt like it was time and and randomly enough so I, the first two spec scripts i wrote were actually doing fairly well i was i knew some managers and agents and they were kind of going around town and i was getting some interest from some production companies about about buying those um but i didn't have the directing opportunities and out of nowhere right in the middle of shooting american carol um like a long string your mother's aunt's pets grandmother's cousin's friend like was one of the producers from Sable Life. And they said, oh yeah, we really liked what you did on these other films. And um, would you come and, and help us with this? Maybe console or whatever. And I, I read the script and um, that they had at the time. And it was about, it had these, um, you know, as you, as you may remember, it dealt with teen suicide and it was t- tackling that issue. Uh, and I had had two dear friends uh, commit suicide when I was growing up. And I was like, I honestly wasn't all that excited about the faith component, but I was so drawn to the, well, if I can, you know, do, do anything to, to help curb this, this issue that still remains with us today. And perhaps is even worse now. Um, you know, I, I wanted to do it and I wanted to take it on and they, they were great. They didn't know, they didn't have a ton of film experience in their team, but they were getting some good partners and, um, and so, you know, over the course of several months, it just worked out that they they asked me to to do the film, and and I was just real passionate about trying to, you know, do what I could in, in as broad of an audience as possible. You know, I I really didn't want. I never came out of school, or I, I never intended to do any kind of faith work. I would just that was just never part of my paradigm, um, and it, it was never really a, a giant desire. And and at the time, the faith world was like. I didn't even know it, it, it was so off my radar. I, I guess in afterwards I learned about these Billy Graham films that were happening, but I didn't really even, I wasn't even aware of those. And it was kind of this very new thing. Um, and they're like, yeah, we wanted, there's, there's one or two films that have done well and we want to do one for teens. And I was like, all right, well, cool. I, I, I love that stage of life. I was really impacted in that stage. And, um, but Hey, how about we try to make this something that I actually want to watch and like not, put a bunch of Christianese junk in here. And, and so, yeah, so we went through a whole bunch of rewrites together and tried to, we're always with the hope and the goal. And I, I commend them for this at the time. They, they really wanted to do something that, that reached beyond um, the walls. And, you know, it turned out that in the end, the, you know, it's, 
it's really expensive to marketing wise to reach the teen market. And so in the end of the day, we just didn't have the capital to try to make inroads into that. And so they just uh, defaulted back as, Hey, we just need to stay close to our core and, and go to the, the faith audience. And it, I, you know, I was always a little saddened by that because we had tested it in some public high schools and it seemed unless, unless kids were like a complete nihilist or something or real like militant atheists that most could handle the faith that was in the film and just saw it as a, a natural part of something that they or some of their friends might do. So it's like for you, here you are, you're, um, you don't really know this space. You find yourself, your first directing film project is, you know, in this space. And then from there, you, you, you then go on to, uh, this is like a big Christian, what would be called a big Christian film is I'm not ashamed, right? Like this was one of those stories that had been talked about for a while from, um, of course, the horrible thing at Columbine. Mm -hmm. Um, so how did you get connected to the Rachel Scott story? That's the film we're talking about is I'm not ashamed, which I'm sure many people ended up seeing that film. Yeah, that, that, um, I think because of my work in the teen space, I think that that was of course a big draw. So those, I, I didn't know those producers before that. And so they, they had reached out to me. They were looking for someone to, um, you know, they, they had gotten down the road with a, a few screenwriters and they were looking for a writer and a, a director that could, um, you know, help work with Rachel's mother, um, Beth, and and she wasn't hundred uh, percent happy with where the, the story was. So, you know, can you come on and, and help and work with her and, and polish the script up a little bit, and then and then we'll go shoot it. Um, so yeah, so and I think it was it was just comments from my, of my background and and uh, you know the, with. The ability to do both those things and and then having some experience in the teen space and, and kind of like to save a life they wanted to be able to reach that that group and and just tell something that, that it appealed to them um so did yeah you, did you feel an extra you know talk a little bit about the just the experience of of making that film because this was obviously a story that at that point was pretty well known mm -hmm. and um, still very sensitive for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. A lot of, a lot of emotion wrapped up into this story. Um, going into this, did you going into the, you know, making that film that even in the development process with the script and, and everything, did you, did you, were you trying to be very cognizant of that and think, okay, um, let's, you know, it's already so dramatized. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, yeah, what, what was the process of making that film? Yeah. It, I mean, it was an absolute minefield. Like you couldn't, you know, it's, it was a, a hard one, but I, I just had, I was led by this deep compassion for uh, Rachel's mom, Beth, that, that just had felt so burdened to tell the story. I didn't even see it as my, my film. This is a, this is, I, I have this random little ability in this world to tell stories in this way. And there's a big desire to do this. And with all the tragedy that she had been through, I just, I, I just saw it as something uh, a gift that I could potentially give to her and to, to this community and to the people that would, would care about this type of film. And so, um, so yeah, she and I spent a ton of time together early on and I, I just was exploring areas that, and asking a lot of questions and, uh, yeah, just, just trying to 
to get to the core of the story. And I think at the same time, you're also wondering with such a um, tragic story, like, how can this be entertaining? <laughs> you know, like we're still making entertainment. Like it, and I'd seen enough of the films that are just so difficult to watch. Um, you know, one of my favorite films, Hotel Rwanda or whatever, but you know, like I, I was trying to take lessons from those and, and then also, but it's still a team film. You don't want it to be this like dirge, you know, this like, um, just difficult thing to get through. So I was trying to inject moments of joy and humor and levity. And, and that was part of the challenge too, is like, all right, ultimately this has to be entertainment. Someone has to want to go pay money to go see this. And it, it has to provide a certain um, level of hope and, and create a roller coaster ride in there. And so uh, now, I mean, not that hotel Rwanda does that, that's kind of a, a different, more, you know, award category type movie with a, a big cast and all that. But for what the hand of cards that we were dealt, this is what I felt like needed to happen. Um, so, yeah, so that was kind of a personal challenge is like, how can we make this about this horrible thing and celebrate uh, all the beautiful things that can come from it? You know, um, was there anything that uh, anything about the story in particular that drew you to the to the project, like, because, uh, like I said, obviously the story is so well known in terms of what yeah. happened to her. But was there something in particular for you that you thought, okay, here's what I can bring to the table because I want people to know this. This is this is the this is what I want to focus on. Yeah, well, I guess I guess two things. You know that that realness that you were talking about previously from to save a life. I wanted to kind of bring the authenticity to that. Um, but something that, that I felt led as well was. Um, I mean, I guess I'm always fascinated by having been around a decent amount of tragedy and stuff like that. Like all of the beauty that can, that can spring from that. And that, um, that redemptive quality that can come from such a horrible event that, um, that you don't want it to happen to cause that of course, but, but just the interesting ways God can kind of weave an incredible tapestry together from all this tragedy and redeem it um is is just a theme i'm fascinated with and she had so many moments of that in there and even ways that they sort of knew this was coming before that uh little signs and little interpretations of things and events that they had um that that almost give it like wow maybe this you know there there was spiritual runners kind of through the whole story from the from the beginning before it happened they were just fascinating and um you know there, there had been a ton of great columbine films out already like guess man science elephant and so i, I was wanting to it's like th those films have already been done they talk about the tragedy I, I wanted to really dive into more of this young woman's journey on the way to there and what allows her to have the confidence and the faith to make the decision she did at the end. So in some ways it's like this whole reverse engineered, like, okay, you're, you're lead to the path that you can do this kind of like the mission or something, right? Like you're following Defoe's character all the way along so that when he makes a decision, it makes sense. Right. Or he's able, he has the, the character to be able to do what he does at the end. And what, what was special about, I'm not ashamed. I'm, I'm, I've, I think I've written, yeah, I've written three other true stories in this past, year and a half. So like, I'm very much in that. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just kind of hot now because people want things that are, <laughs> that, that are existing IP essentially. But, um, yeah, like I, I feel an incredible responsibility to the people that do it to represent them accurately 
and and there is a, a pressure like I'm always imagining them sitting in the back of the theater watching it, you know, mm-hmm. on, on the premiere or whenever they watch it first. And um, and it's there in some ways they're your audience when it's a true story. They're like your who you're making the film for in a way, because it's like, well, if they don't like it, then I'm just completely failed at my job. Like this is their story. You want to honor that to such a, a great degree, or at least I do. Um, so how, yeah, how, did, how did Rachel's mom respond to the film? Oh, it was incredible. Their whole family there, you know, it's a decent sized family that she had. It was a family of five kids. And so they were all coming with the mom and, and it was this big, big group. And then um, it was incredible. It was one of the, the highlights of my career was seeing them respond, seeing them come out of the theater and they just, they give you a hug and, you know, that was so honoring of Rachel and it, it was just beautiful. So it's kind of like, well, after that, you know, you've, you've done what you set out to do and, you know, you, you hope audiences respond to it, but you can't control that part of it, but I could control this part, right? Like of having, creating something that they would, that, that honored their daughter and sister. Um, wow. Yeah. So and it's such a, in some ways it's a really, it's a great responsibility, but it's also an incredibly, um, special thing to go through with a crew because the crew I find often takes that as well. Like the production designer on I'm not ashamed was wanting to find the accurate couches and the period stuff and, and all, all of the people that like we had Rachel's actual journals and, you know, I got copies of them to help write the script from them. And like, and when people get those or when the production design department gets those to make props from it, like there's a sense of, um, incredible uh responsibility they have too to and and of course the actors as well like they're representing real people so they they take that burden on so it's, it, it does feel shared and it's shared amongst your community of people that are making film the film in a really beautiful way and and i think that's a really incredible experience to share with with the other creatives on that project you followed that you followed that film up with a film called uh the world we make Mm-hmm. And um, was there any any unique challenges that you feel like, or, or maybe even things that you learned in the, the the production of that film that you feel like it's kind of really helped you grow and develop as a as a filmmaker? Oh man, I mean, each one you learn so much. I, I mean, I literally keep a list of of things I learned on each film. <laughs> I try to review them whenever I go to the next project. So I don't make the same mistake twice. <laughs> But I mean, each one, um, you know, you just like every actor you work with, you, you learn more ways to connect and to communicate. And, um, yeah, I feel like I'm just learning new tricks all the time. And that one we, we were doing, it was kind of technically too, we were having fun with tracking horses on drones and doing some things like that, that, um, and getting to do things that were just far easier than they used to be 10 years ago. Um, so that was, that was really cool. But um, uh, I think that brings us to your next, your latest film finding you, um, which is it's this sweet romance, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a I think, I think it's described as a romantic dramedy. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, <clears throat> but once again, it's beautifully shot. It feels like your scale has gotten a little bigger. It feels like a bigger oh, yeah. budget. I don't, I don't know what the budget was, but it certainly feels like a bigger film. And it, um, but it's very much um, 
for the the romantics out there i told my wife that uh that uh, it's right up her alley uh yep. and uh fans of ya it's right up, it's based on a book right it's based on a book it is yeah yeah, it's yeah. Based. um and i'm a little jealous of you because you got to work in this film you got to work with um you have a pretty cool cast and mm. the one that i'm jealous about is is vanessa redgrave can you um talk a little bit about uh, just um, how this film came to be and what brought you on board to make this film. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was the core team essentially from the world we make. So uh, Ken Carpenter and then uh, Julian Reed and, and we really enjoyed working together on that one and we wanted to do another. And um, one of the exec producers had, had found the, this book and said, Hey, I think this would make a good, good film and, and be a good YA um you know, romance. And, and so it was really the same team. We just carried over. We did it. It was one of the uh, films that I've worked on that's come together the most quickly. Um, and uh, so that was, that was really amazing and wonderful and rare. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so, you know, got the exact producer got the rights to the book and we did some development and, and we were off to the races and, um, and uh did yeah. you have to do when you were when you're given the book? Uh, is that is it a, is that is is that what we see in the film, or did you have to rework a lot? What, what's the process like for you in in developing a a novel to the to the screen? Yeah, so I, I've done it once or twice previously, so I had a little bit of experience with it. Um, I think yeah, you're, they're usually a lot longer, when you, and you can't fit all the story in. So as as is well known, you're just trying to look for what is the core of the story and what, what aspects you want to bring out, what's going to be the most cinematic, uh, an amount. Um, and thankfully was in conversations with the author about that. And, and when I presented, so I, I go through the book and then I present like 10, whatever things, whatever it is, five, 10, two, uh, things you want to change. And, um, and she was wonderful. Jenny Jones, the author of the book. And she was like, yeah, that all sounds great. Um, I think, she was shocked that, it, that we even wanted to do the book and all that stuff. She was very happy to have something <laughs> of hers coming out. So and she was really fantastic all the way through, but I wanted to get her perspective. Like I like to get the author's perspective because you never know, you know, like my work five years later, there's things I'd want to change about it. So I like to dive in with the author and see if there's anything that in retrospect, you know, they would have done differently or they wish they had done. Cause you, you get a bit of a redo um, if you want. And then, yeah, then, so a lot of it was really condensing it and picking which storylines to go with. There were a few more characters in the book and things that we minimized. Um, so yeah, so I, I kind of do that. And then I literally, as I write, I have the book open next to me and, and I sometimes I'm, I'll kind of read the chapter as I read a scene, you know, and see which lines, sometimes you throw some lines in that are verbatim from the book and you kind of pick and choose and, see how things are going there. But, but yeah, we did, we did change some things quite sub substantially to make it kind of, um, you know, more cinematic. And did you know, I mean, I'm assuming it was in the book that you were going to shoot in Ireland the whole time or. Yes. Uh, we, before even starting to write, we had taken an early trip out there to see the feasibility of it. Um, meet with producers out there. And um, yeah, just to see what was possible and all that, that trip was successful and we felt that we could do that and, and move forward after that.
shouldn't all films be shot in Ireland? Like, it's just beautiful. <laughs> uh, th- th- uh, what, 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 what was that experience like shooting on location there? I, I, did you uh, shoot, did you shoot everything there or did you shoot some stuff here too? Um, we shot most everything there. We did do a, a, you know, if you remember the opening sequence in New York and the very end, we shot uh, a, a tiny bit. We did a day in New York and a day in, um, in Los Angeles for the interior of the plane. Cause there was literally no airplane fuselage that we could use in Ireland. <laughs> we were trying to figure it out for the entire production. We had that one day hanging at the end. It's like, oh, we just can't do it. Or we'd have to ship one over on a boat from England. And, you know, it was all this, or we can take the whole crew over to England or, you know, the actors. And it was it's like, yeah, I think this will be easier to do over at Air Hollywood and in, in North Hollywood in LA, which I had shot at before. Um, so, so yeah, so it was, yeah, it was, it was just fabulous. It's a beautiful country and wonderful people just absolutely love the the crews there. I mean, really it was just myself and the producers that were American and a few of the actors. And so we, we uh, took advantage of the really skilled crews over there. Um, they're making a lot of movies uh, and a lot of television shows. So it's really a great talent base. Um, for those who maybe are just not have seen it yet, you want to just pitch people on the, like what it was. So tell people what finding you is about. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It, like you said, it's a, a romantic dramedy. It's a, uh, that takes place in Ireland about a, a young woman who's kind of struggling with her life direction in college and heads over there on an exchange trip after uh, failing to get into this Juilliard type music school for her violin, which is her true dream. And on the way over, she meets um, a young man named Beckett Rush, who happens to be one of the biggest young movie stars in, in the fictitious world of the movie. Um, who's over there in Ireland doing a series of, of dragon movies. Um, and they develop an unlikely friendship that ends up transforming both of their lives. So it, it, uh, it's often, um, you know, a, a slightly younger skewed Notting Hill, you know, with the, with the, the roles reversed. Yeah. The roles reversed. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I mentioned earlier my jealousy. So when you work with a legend like Vanessa Redgrave, what was it? What was the, did you know you wanted her from the beginning? What was the process of casting her and what was it like working with her on set? Yeah, we were really thankful. Um, well, I mean, she was on our list from the beginning. Um, you know, we were looking for, a, you know, a, a, a really experienced Irish or English actress and she was, she was at the top from the start and um, our casting director was like, ah, oh, this, I, I don't, I don't think there's much of a chance. And, you know, we were like, oh, but, but let's all try and see what happens. Right. So we, and um, I just remember the joyous uh, phone call from our Irish casting director, <laughs> you know, and I think she might do it. I think she might do it. And she was uh, this wonderful uh Irish accent, you know, screaming on the phone. Um, and, and she was just, this is amazing. This is, you know, we were all so excited. And, um, and she was honestly the, the first, uh, the first actor to, to uh, commit to the project. So that was one of our early shots. Early very cool. Reproduction. And um, yeah, she just said she responded to the script and the role and, and liked. And so it was very, um, I guess, pure in that sense, um, from the artistry side. And, and that's the type of person she is. I mean, she just is 
hundred percent into her craft and the art and, you know, likes to uh, just do the stories that interesting roles. So, uh, so yeah. And then, you know, working with her was great. She was wonderful with the other actors and really, really uh, supportive of them. Um, and she just blew me away with how hard she worked. Like she, she had the work ethic of a, a young actor in, in Hollywood, you know, struggling to make it like she was, we spent four or five hours in her room, uh, the, the, the day before she started shooting, going over lines and, and every little detail of props and, and like just incredibly detailed. And it's, it's very apparent, you know, that of the work ethic that got her the six Academy award nominations that she has. Um, it's like that you can see, you can see her joy and love of act. Like she's not just, you know, it's not a paycheck. It's not just trying to phone it in. Like she's still, she's still acting. She's still an actor. She's still working and she's still trying to hone her craft. Even Oh, she absolutely. Yeah. She puts so much effort. She's so focused all day on it and, and is, um, so dogged in, in her effort and determination to kind of do her very best and, and bring something unique to the role. And it's, and it's just brilliant to see the different ways that she'll play against um, common intentions or objectives. Like she'll go against that. And uh, I mean, it's just, it's beautiful to see. When, when you, when people watch your films, um, uh, what is it that you want them to walk away with? Like other than obviously be entertained, <laughs> you know, like yeah. laugh and cry. Like, um, but, but as you, as you sit down, when you first sit down, when everything is just all in your mind, you know, what, what do you, what are you thinking about what you want the audience to receive? Like what, what is it a, about your work as a writer um, when you sit down to craft a story, um, that you're going, man, I'm hope, I hope I'm able to, to get this across. I hope the audience is able to experience this. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, obviously I know it can be different for different films, but I'm just curious, like overall, what are you thinking about as a writer when you first sit down to craft a film? <laughs> yeah, it's probably like, how, how can I get people to want to click on this or go pay a ticket for this? Right. <laughs> um, you know, in a very practical sense, you know, <laughs> What, what, what's going to make it worthy of, of people's attention. I think, you know, in features these days, you, you have to know what that is and identify, okay, what's going to make this special? What's going to make this stand out? Yeah. What's going to make people want to see this. But I mean, um, I guess I, I, and I'm working on this philosophy myself and trying to explore who I am. Uh, I mean, and still in the process of it. So it may shift or change, but I, I love this idea of having my films, you know, either like bring joy in some sense, and it can be a real difficult journey to that, but that it could add to the amount of joy in the world or that it could inspire some sort of great greatness, you know, that it, that it could help people think, yeah, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can uh, it, just expand the realm of possibility in people's life, right. Towards something good or, and then in an area that, like I, I'm a huge fan of really imaginative works and fantasy and taking people to other worlds. And, and in that sense, like anything that I can do to, to spur on the imagination uh, is a, is a deeply spiritual thing to me because when we can imagine things 
more deeply or in a, in a paradigm that we've never even thought about, you know, I think that opens up other worlds, other possibilities and other ways of even viewing the divine, you know, um, if we can't, uh, if we don't have the skills to imagine, then we can't imagine our, our lives being better. We can't imagine perhaps a God that, that could do things outside of our paradigm and, and work in, in greater ways than we can, and then in our finite world. So I think the, you know, the works of Tolkien and Lewis and Charles Williams and the Inklings and some of those guys from are really inspirational to me. And I would love to, um, I think part of the next step of my career is to, and what I'm, I'm hoping Lord willing, we'll, I'll get to move more into is some, some imaginative works that spur on the imagine, you know, people's imaginations and, you know, get to bring them to places like, like Frank, Frank Herbert gets to do in Dune or George Lucas with Star Wars. That is beautifully said, my friend. And um, uh, well, I, I, I want to thank you for this time. I, I've loved this conversation and I, I, I wanted people to, uh, who hadn't yet met you and and, and become familiar with your f- uh, films to do that. And, and, and uh, I, we want people to see your films and, um, uh, and just get kind of connected to what you're doing. And so thank you. Thank you for just spending some time with me today. And thank you. Oh, for, thank you for all of your great work. And I like to close our podcast by praying for my guests. Would you allow me to do that today? Oh, I'd be honored. Thanks. Right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for Brian. Thank you for this amazing conversation and just learning from him and um, growing with him. Uh, he, I think he's offered so many interesting things for us to take away, uh, to think about, to consider. Um, thank you for um, just the films, the projects that he's been a part of. And God, we just pray a blessing upon him. We pray a blessing upon his career pray a blessing upon his family and just pray you'd watch over all of them and keep them safe and protect them and uh, just be with Brian. I, I, uh, even as he was saying there at the end, um, God, I pray you would just fill him with your imagination and uh, with your creativity um, so that uh, his can be an overflow of what you've downloaded into him. God, I pray that um, uh, he himself would be inspired by new things, by new challenges, um, that he would continue to develop and grow as a storyteller. And uh, just thank you for this opportunity. And uh, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com. Mm-hmm.